Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, your boy on social media at MMALOTN, and the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive, where we just recently surpassed 3,000 fighter profiles across 16 different promotions. Make sure you leave no stone unturned when you utilize the MMA Fight Archive, as we have direct links to past fights for all of the competitors competing on these upcoming cards. There's 17 events in February alone across 11 different promotions, and we have all of the fighters on the database, and you can go to their profile, click on any fight that you want to see of theirs, and we'll have the direct link for the majority of fights that have scoured the web from corner to corner to ensure that I have as many links as possible so that you yourself, whether it's as a fan uh, an, a capper, an analyst, a coach, a fighter. Uh, we have high-level commentators that utilize this service as well. We ensure that you guys do as have the ability to do as much research as you want on these upcoming fights. So make sure you guys check out the MMA Fighter Archive. Seven-day free trial available. Link for that is in the description below. All right. The UFC had an off week last week, but there was also... A lot of MMA events in terms of the LFA, Octagon, and ACA. I hope you guys were able to tune into the LFA 175 breakdown that I had for you guys, where we went 11 and 2 on predictions, not to mention calling a plus 350 underdog, as well as the dog of the night coming through as well with Samuel Silva. We did very well on that card. And again, regional breakdowns is something that you can look forward to on a monthly basis. One a month I will drop for any of the regional promotions I cover. But if you're looking for me to cover them for the ones that are coming up every single event, you can get those breakdowns on my MMA Lock of the Night Patreon page. Link for that is in the description below where I do breakdowns for Cage Warriors, LFA, ACA, KSW, and Octagon, which all have events upcoming in February. So check that out. All right, getting back on track here, we have uh, UFC Vegas 85 coming up where we got Nasruddin Imavov taking on Roman Delize in a middleweight bout. This is the first UFC event of 11 straight events that we got coming your way over the next 11 weeks. This takes us all the way to middle of April, which is capped off by the big UFC 300 card. So there is a ton of MMA coming your way, specifically from the UFC world. But this is not a bad offering for the UFC to kick off this uh, stretch of fights that they have. Obviously, they got a high-level featherweight matchup in the co-main event. I believe it's featherweight or lightweight. Either way, uh, Hanato Moikano making his return every since he uh, got a bunch of popularity after his uh, infamous speech after finishing Brad Rodell. Moikano want money. After that speech, he went viral. And then unfortunately, he tore his uh, ACL, I think it was, was put on the sidelines for the entirety of 2023. But now he finally makes his return against the ever so handsome Drew Dober. That should be a banger and potential fight of the night, but not to mention a bunch of other great fights on this UFC card. Uh, let's quickly recap UFC 297 from a lock of the night and dog of the night perspective before we get any further. Lock of the night comes through. Movzara Ivloyev wore a, a little bit of damage from Arnold Allen, but still managed to go out there and win the first two rounds pretty decisively and he was able to get his hand raised in cash as a minus 190 lock of the night play we had a uh, several other lock of the night plays cash over the regional promotions that i've been covering as well with the exception of my ksw lock of the night which did not come through but that brings our lock of the night record for 2024 to five and one for an 83 percent hit rate I would like to keep it above 80%, but uh, last year, I believe it was 74%. Let's try to get it and keep it up uh, above 80%. Dog of the Night. 
I was mystified to see the amount of love coming in on Malcolm Gordon throughout UFC 297 fight week. I pulled the trigger on Jimmy Flick as a dog of the night at plus 115. And 24 hours later, he jumps up to plus 150. 48 hours after that, he jumped up to plus 170, which is when I added more on him. Uh, And he comes through, you know, pretty much how we drew it up. You know, we knew he would get uh, shit kicked on the feet, but if he was able to get the fight to the ground, Malcolm Gordon, although he's a BJJ black belt himself, had nothing for what Jimmy Flick was going to be able to uh, to put on him, and that's exactly what happened. So we cash him as a dog of the night as well, cast a couple on the regional scene, and that brings our dog of the night record for 2024 to 4-3 and three for a 57% hit rate. All right, reminder, uh, the Lockheed Two-Step and Lockheed Trinity free parlay that normally drops on Friday for you guys drops on Monday, first and foremost, on the Patreon for those folks. So if you guys want to check that out, check that out on the Patreon page. And then lastly, shout out to my guys over there at GodzillaWins.com. They cover pretty much every single sport. The NFL is in the thick of it. We got the Super Bowl coming up very shortly. Uh, NFL, NHL, uh, NBA, all those sports, they're covered on Godzilla Wins. And I'm the head guy over there for the MMA content. So you look if you're looking for written MMA content, Godzilla Wins, you guys can check it out. Wednesdays we drop my main event breakdown in the written form uh, and then Thursdays we do a three best money line spots uh, for that as well so you guys can check that out on godzillawins.com. Shout out to those guys once again. All right. We got, I think it's 12 or 13 fights lined up for this UFC Vegas 85 card. And I don't want to take too much time talking about other shit. So let's get right into it. First fight of the night. Let me just get my shit in order here. First fight of the night. Uh, Heavyweights where we got the UFC debut of Thomas Peterson coming in as a minus 170 favorite. He goes up against Jamal Pogues, who comes in at plus 145. Now, Thomas Peterson had a bit of a road bump or a speed bump uh, on his way to the UFC when he was trying to win the heavyweight LFA title uh, back in 2022. Unfortunately, he gassed after about two and a half rounds uh, putting some decent work on Waldo Cortez Acosta, who was able to muster up a finish in the dying seconds of the third round there, and that eventually punched the ticket, I believe, to the Contender Series in place of Thomas Peterson, who a lot of people believed was eventually going to make it. And that's what Peterson was able to do. He picked up two more wins on the regional scene, got to the Contender Series this past year, and uh, was able to pick up a second-round submission victory over Chandler Cole. That punches his ticket to the big show, which is where I really think he belongs as a 28-year-old 8-1 fighter. This guy is a wrestle-heavy fighter with great pressure, great forward movement, and although his technical striking still needs a little bit of work, he does great work in terms of utilizing forward pressure and just blitz attacks to keep his opponent on his back foot until he's able to wrap them up, push them up against the cage, or drag them to the ground where he does nothing but solid work from that top position, more often than not looking for a uh, TKO uh, to get his opponents out of there. His win over Chandler Cole was the first submission victory on his eight-fight record that he had, or eight wins that he had uh, but this is a guy that's very dangerous from that top position when he's able to establish it his opponent this weekend Jamal Pogues is looking to bounce back from a loss to Mick Parkin back in July in a fight where Parkin tripled him up in significant strikes that night Jamal Pogues is the fighter that has shown to 
be able to go out there and outpoint his opponents on the feet with his striking or go out there and use a takedown heavy approach uh, to try to grind his opponents out in that facet. But I got to say, over his last two fights, he's looked not too great. Even though he won the second last fight against Josh Parisian, he was my lock of the night play that night. And I remember biting my nails the entire time because he had a huge issue in terms of trying to control Parisian on the ground. Once Parisian was able to work his way back to his feet, he started really putting the shit kicking on Jamal Pogues. And Pogues was struggling to you know stay in the fight in terms of in the striking realm. But luckily, he was always able to land a takedown to get back into a safe zone, get some control time, and make it look good optically for the judges so that he was able to get his hand raised by decision he just couldn't get it going against Mick Parkin and I wonder if he's starting to hit some sort of decline which is going to be pretty weird considering he's only 28 years old he has a good amount of experience and in this matchup against Thomas Peterson he'll have the experience advantage bar none funnily enough Thomas Peterson's second fight professional fight was headlined by Jamal Pogues as he took on Alex Polizzi that night and Polizzi was able to uh, to finish uh, Jamal Pogues that night as well I lean ever so slightly with the Thomas Peterson side, although minus 170 is a little bit wide considering the experience disadvantage he's going to be at in this fight. But I think his ability to take command and take control of a fight is going to be the difference maker. I think Pogues will struggle to get off on his striking, and I think Pogues will struggle to implement any type of grapple-heavy approach. This should put Peterson in the driver's seat. This should allow him to either push this fight up against the cage, drag this fight to the ground, or at least put output on Pogues grinding this fight out. The over one and a half last time I checked, it was sitting at minus 220. Uh, big number here for a heavyweight, especially on the overs. But knowing how these guys fight, uh, they normally go over that one and a half round mark. Uh, obviously, Peterson a little bit more prone to getting finishes, but it's Pogues who has been to four straight decisions. And given the way that these uh, guys clash uh, and, and they face off with one another, another I expect this fight to go over that one and a half round mark i actually expect it to go to a decision i'm going to pick thomas pearson to win this fight by decision uh, pretty much just off of output and activity and uh, as long as he's able to avoid some of the big shots that might be coming his way from pogues he should be safe enough to go out there and get the w here i just wonder if he's been able to fix uh, his ability to manage his gas tank a little bit better especially considering that's the way that he lost his lone professional defeat but give me peterson and peterson by decision all right, let's move over to the middleweights, or sorry, the lightweights now, where we got Landon Quinones coming in as a plus 120 dog. He takes on Mar Markel Medeiros, recent contender series signee, who comes in at minus 140. We'll start off on the Landon Quinones side, who is a veteran of the Ultimate Fighter 31, where he got finished relatively quickly in the first round, uh, the opening round of the tournament there, uh, against Jason Knight. Luckily for him, he was called up on short notice to take on Nazra Hackpress back in September, and it was not a great performance for him even though the numbers say that they were pretty close to the first two rounds only being separated by four significant strikes we can see that uh, Quinones was really not in shape and ready for that fight as he started looking up at the clock and started to look a little bit exhausted near the ending of that second round in the third round Hackpress was able to outstrike him I believe by close to 20 significant strikes but it was obvious that Quinones was significantly slowing down and Hackpress was able to just have target practice pretty much for that matchup Quinones normally when he is at his best when he was really running through competition on the Titan FC scene on the regional scene um, he likes to strike at distance use his uh, his speed and his combination striking and his power striking from distance to get off on most of his shots he's gotten some finishes but his level of competition has been a little bit sketchy which is wonder which is why I wonder why the UFC decided to bring him in in the first place maybe they're trying to tap into the potential that he had in the Titan FC days but I just don't know if that's going to be enough for him to make it successful and having long 
career in the UFC, especially if the UFC is looking to match him up against a guy like Markel Medeiros, who looks to have very high uh, potential and a very high ceiling. He picked up his Dana White Contender Series contract, uh, or sorry, the UFC contract through the Contender Series this past season, uh, where he was able to finish Isa Isakov by a knockout in the first round with a beautifully timed knee. Uh, he had to deal with the grapple heavy approach early, but Luckily for him, he was able to stop the takedowns, keep the fight upright, utilize the striking advantage, batter the lead leg of Isakov, and then time a perfect knee when Isakov was uh, changing levels, and he was able to knock him out like that. Medeiros trains at a Factory X, which is one of the more uh, notable gyms out of uh, the UFC with guys like Brandon Royval, uh, Dustin Jacoby, uh, Anthony Smith used to train out of there as well, uh, Yusuf Zalal, a lot of names coming out of uh, Factory X. Markel Marderos might go down as one of the better guys to come out of that gym when all is said and done. This guy has a great striking game, very educated striking game, with a lot of his strikes coming from his kicks. He does a great job with the calf kick, mixing it up to the body and switching up to the head when he gets his opponents thinking that he's going low. And and then he also has a decent enough grappling game if he feels like he has a good enough advantage in that realm over his opponents. Going up against Nilandon Quinones here, I think Maderos has this fight in the bag. I'm kind of surprised that we're only getting minus 140 on this line right now, as I think overall he is the better fighter. Outside of a Landon Quinones knockout, I think that we'll see Maderos control the majority of this fight with his kicks from range and possibly even mixing in some takedowns, trying to get some control time and try to drain that energy of Quinones so he doesn't have as much knockout power on it shots. Give me Maderos here to outpoint, outstrike, and win a decision over Landon Canones. Uh, like I said, Markel Maderos by decision. Minus 140. I'd kind of be surprised if that's the number come fight night. Moving on to the next fight, we got a women's flyweight belt between plus 100 Luana Carolina. She takes on the Lithuanian Ronda Rousey, as I like to call her, Yulia Stolyarenko, who comes in at minus 120. We'll start off on the Carolina side, who was able to stop a two-fight losing streak last time by picking up a upset victory as a plus 180 underdog over Ivana Petrovic. That was a fight where she utilized pretty much her entire game. Takedown defense, takedowns, uh, you know, uh, her volume striking style, uh, good work in the clinch. Uh, very much improved from what we saw from her way back in the day. You know, this is going to be her eighth UFC fight. If you told me when she made her UFC debut that this fight, this woman would at least fight eight times in the UFC, I would call you crazy. She did not look that good. She had a very low amount of experience, but she's really starting to tie it together. Um, her takedown defense is slowly improving. Her significant strikes, her combinations, her volume striking approach is improving and that's really been the reason she's been able to get a lot of the wins that she has to this point. The fact that she has a victory over Lupito Godinez, although it should have an asterisk beside it considering Godinez took that fight on a week's notice after she had won a fight uh, the previous weekend. Um, but still, very surprising that she has a win over a fighter like Godinez, especially considering what Godinez has been up to nowadays. Um, Stolyarenko, Coming off an upset victory over Molly McCann, who fights later on this card, she pulled off that upset as a plus 190 underdog. Uh, she was able to pretty much just bite down on her mouthpiece, push the pressure, push the pace, uh, eventually get the takedown, and then secure an armbar victory. Uh, that's 10 armbar victories that she has on her record out of 11 victories. That other 11th victory, or one of those victories, um, came by decision. 
So all of her finishes by armbar, she's so good in terms of implementing judo and takedowns and then latching onto the arm of her opponent that nobody really knows how to get out of it if they're unable to, uh, you know, keep the fight standing. And I think that's the trouble that Carolina is going to run into in this fight. I think at a certain point, we're going to see this fight end up on the ground. And from there, Stolyarenko should be able to snatch up a submission. The intriguing part about this fight is the fact that Stolyarenko, this is going to be her second fight at flyweight. Uh, she'll have an inch uh, height advantage, which probably ends up being a wash here. But I think it's really her strength and power that she brings to the table at this flyweight division, which will make her so successful against competition at the level of Luana Carolina. So I was hoping that the public, and it might still happen during fight week, that people start to pile on to Carolina, remembering how bad Stolyarenko could actually be. But I think just her persistence and expertise in the armbar realm is going to be too much for Carolina to deal with here. So Carolina can go out there and draw armbar defense as much as she wants. I think once Stolyarenko snatches it up, it's just a matter of time before she ends up getting the tap. So I like Stoliarenko here. I wish she was the underdog because, you know, I don't really like to invest too much into a fighter that only has that one path to victory. But the under two and a half is actually plus 120, which is not that bad. You know, possibly covers a Carolina finish, which is highly unlikely. But I still think that's going to be Stoliarenko who ends up adding the 11th submission armbar victory to her record over Luana Carolina. All right, moving on to the next fight here. We got a featherweight belt between Ji Young Lee going up against Blake Builder. We got uh, 145 coming in, minus 145 coming in on the favorite Lee and plus 125 on the dog Blake Builder. We'll start off on the Lee side who picked up his UFC contract after winning the Road to UFC uh, tournament back in February of 2023 where he was able to pick up a, uh, I think it was a split, might have been a unanimous. Regardless, it was a decision victory over Yi Jia. That night, he dealt with a lot of takedown attempts on the behalf of Yi Zhao, who is normally a, a very relentless grappler and likes to get his opponents to the ground and do solid work from on top. But we saw some decent takedown defense and even better get-ups from Lee so that he could get back to the striking room where he had a clear advantage in that matchup. Again, it was a very close fight, and uh, I was told from people that uh, Lee had gone into that fight with an injury, uh, a bad knee injury, and he managed to still get his hand raised uh, even through that injury. And he knew he couldn't pass up on the opportunity of fighting on the finale, hence why he fought with that injury. And hence why he has been out for the rest of 2023, and it's been a full year since he had competed once he stepped inside the cage this weekend. He's fully healed up, fully ready to go, and I know that he has been training his wrestling very diligently and even brought in the likes of Cody Steele, as you guys can see on... On his Instagram page, Cody Steele, high-level BJJ black belt, good wrestler from the Fury FC scene, um, training with him, which will definitely improve uh, the takedown defense and the overall grappling game of Lee, who's already not that bad, but if he's able to keep fights in the upright position, normally he'll have a striking advantage over his opponents. He's standing at five foot ten at seventy-three inches uh, of reach. That's a pretty big and lanky featherweight that could come in handy against some of these smaller guys. His opponent this weekend is thus a smaller guy, a two-inch height disadvantage and a five-inch reach disadvantage is what Blake Builder will be at when he steps inside the cage. He's looking to come back from a decision loss to Kyle Nelson from back in June where Nelson was able to outstrike him 
stop all of his takedown attempts and batter him on the feet in the clinch and in open space to win that fight by decision. Builder is a guy that I've had a very hot and cold relationship with. I picked him as a plus 180 underdog on the contender series to get that victory over Alex Morgan. He came through for me. I bet against him with Shane Young, and uh, he went out there and showcased solid footwork and movement and good striking output and he was able to get the win there and then I bet on him against Kyle Nelson and he put one out there and uh, pretty much put on a full out dud that's his first professional loss but even in his regional days this is a guy that dealt with a lot of adversity in a lot of his fights he's finished in almost a lot of them a handful of them he was nearly finished but managed to pull through and eventually pull off the victory himself but that's going to not work as much as he takes steps up in competition especially at this level he's a solid wrestler but if he doesn't get the first couple takedowns it really seems to to me like he gets demoralized and allows his opponents to start taking command of fights his striking is coming along as well but a lot of that is just footwork, movement on the outside, and just crashing the pocket every now and then with blitzing shots, but he leaves a lot of openings to get countered and hurt in return. And that's exactly what I think he's going to be facing here against Ji Young Lee. I think Lee should be able to stop the takedowns if I'm hearing correct and his wrestling should be up to snuff. And once they're in open space, I bet I expect the long shots of Lee to really touch a builder from distance and possibly even result in a finish. I think Lee has a ton of potential and at 28 years old and apparently fully healthy now, this guy has a rocket pretty much strapped to his back and I think this fight will really put him on the map for a lot of people. Give me Ji Young Lee and I think he wins this fight very decisively and he gets a TKO finish within the first 10 minutes of this fight. Move it over to the welterweight division. We got Temba Garimbo coming in at minus one, sorry, minus 235. Going up against Pete Rodriguez, who comes in at plus 200. Now, Temba Garimbo has a lot of spotlight and a lot of uh, love on him as of late due to his relationship with Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. So apparently after Temba Garimbo won his last fight against Takashi Sato, which was his first UFC victory, uh, he talked about the fact that he only had $7 in his bank account apparently that struck a a, a a string or tugged on the strings of uh Dwayne Johnson who is famous for having his production company named seven bucks uh production I believe it is uh but also his own story when he was down and out and was looking for a, a way through life uh, he only had seven dollars in his bank account as well thus after Garimba won uh, the Rock reached out to him, bought him a house because Tumbo was talking about how he was sleeping on the mats over there at MMA Masters. The Rock buys him a house, and now he has a lot of pressure on his shoulders, right? Like he has a lot of eyeballs on him now because of this love from The Rock, and I think it's ill-advised love from The Rock, if I'm being honest, because Grimbo talented. But 33 years old, you know, I think his best days were when he was fighting for the EFC, and I just don't know how much further he's going to be able to take it in the UFC. But in his last fight against Takashi Sato, he showed what kind of fighter he is. This guy goes out there, uses his range to throw reckless shots, all to close the distance so that he can get the fight to the ground and smother his opponents from that top position. He has decent jujitsu, but it's really his control and gangly strength that allows him to keep opponents on the ground, and he's able to just move from position to position, landing good enough shots so that the referee isn't force to stand up fights due to a stalemate his opponent this weekend pete rodriguez is making his third walk to the cage now after having a short notice matchup against jack della madalena in a fight that he got pretty finished great quickly finished in uh, and then he picked up his first ufc win with a easy layup victory over mike the truth truth jackson 
Pete Rodriguez is a power puncher, a guy that likes to come forward and utilize big, uh, you know, bombing shots pretty much. Uh, he likes to strike clearly, uh, but the level of competition that he defeated on the regional scene, very, very low level, like very low level. I'm surprised that the UFC even gave him a shot when they did. This 27-year-old has aligned himself with the MMA lab, though, ever since joining the UFC in the hopes of trying to round out this game so that he can bring that power punching style to the UFC as more of an effective style rather than just trying to knock somebody out, gassing, and then getting finished himself. I think it's going to take him a couple fights to get used to that new style, and I think he'll still revert to wanting to go out there and knocking Garimbo's head into the fifth row. And for that reason, I think he's still is going to be up against it here against Garimbo. I feel Garimbo should be able to implement his grappling game. I should be able to, he should be able to get the dominant positions that he needs. But given how reckless he is on the feet, I wouldn't count it out at all that Pete Rodriguez could land a bomb in return to put Garimbo out clean, even before Garimbo's able to, uh, able to get a, a hold of him or take him to the ground. That's why at minus 235, I, I scream pass here. Like maybe a Pete Rodriguez by knockout prop, Pete Rodriguez round one KO prop, possibly is worth a little bit of a sprinkle here but i just don't have enough trust in a guy like rodriguez who is still very green very power reliant and still a you know a piece of clay just waiting to be molded by the guys over there at the mma lab so he's been there for a little while now obviously he was supposed to fight back i believe in september uh or even may it was uh, against natan levy botches his weight cut down to 155 pounds now he's back up at 170 pounds who knows with this guy, but let's see if he even makes the walk this weekend. Regardless, I'm going to go with Green Boy as my prediction. I think he wins inside the distance. Fight doesn't go to decision. will probably be chalky as hell, but I don't expect this fight to even reach the third round. Um, but yeah, fight doesn't go to decision would be my favorite prediction here, but I'm going to go with Green Boy to grind this fight out until he's able to muster up a finish near the ending of that second round. All right. Moving over to the flyweights now, we got Azat Maxim coming in at minus 200, and the Kazakhstani fighter goes up against the plus 175 underdog, Charles Johnson. Now, we'll start off on the Maxim side, who had a successful debut against Tyson Nam. Unfortunately, he came with some adversity. Tyson Nam had some success with his striking, and he was able to keep the fight upright as much as Maxim was looking to get the fight to the ground. But even when Maxim was able to get the fight to the ground, he didn't have a whole lot of uh, damage from that top position. Luckily, he was still throwing enough output and offense that the judges still scored it in his favor, but it wasn't the greatest look for a 16-0 undefeated fighter making his UFC debut. Now 17-0, and with the UFC canvas under his feet, I think we'll see an even better version of this, him this weekend, maybe utilizing his striking a little bit more to eventually set up the takedowns. His striking, luckily, is still good enough, even if his takedowns don't work. He throws enough output, he throws with enough activity, and he does a good job in terms of establishing his range and just working from distance until he can crash that pocket and get fights to the ground. As a part of this weekend, Charles Johnson is on a three-fight losing streak and continues to take tough fight after tough fight, even if it means that it could possibly be the ending of his UFC. Career. This guy is a guy that from the regional scene would use output, movement, and some good clinch work to really touch up his opponents and batter them from range. But since joining the UFC, he's had issues with his output. Beating guys like Zalgas Sumagulov in a very close fight and even Jimmy Flick finishing him, those are decent wins. But a lot of his fights are just slipping through his fingers because he's not throwing enough. You'd expect him to have figured that out after his Ode Osborne fight, after the Cody Durden fight. 
And hopefully even after this Rafael Estevam fight that he had last time around, but it's just these guys eking out these decisions because they're able to control him up against the cage, even if they're not able to land takedowns. And then on the feet, they're still landing more than Charles Johnson when Johnson is just kind of waiting and biding his time. I'm curious to see if we'll see him up against the wall here and lo really looking to let it go so that he can save his UFC roster spot. But I just don't really believe that considering the type of fighter that he's going up against here with Maxim. I think Maxim, when he fought Tyson now, was kind of afraid of the power that was coming his way, and that's what made it harder for him to try to get in on those takedowns. Whereas with Charles Johnson, who's more of a volume-style striker, not a real big power puncher, that could allow Maxim to just get in on, on the inside, get some cage pushing time, some dirty boxing up against the cage, and eventually some takedowns to get that control time as well. But I like Maxim here. I think we'll see a better version of him this weekend than we did in his UFC debut. And I think minus 200 will be a long gone uh, possibility in his future fights, especially considering that he'll be 18-0 after this weekend. Give me that Maxim by decision. There you guys go. All right, moving over to the women's straw weight division we got molly mccann coming in as a chalky minus 305 favorite she's going up against deanna belbitza who comes in at plus 255 now last time around molly mccann suffered her second straight defeat and it came at the hands of Yulia stoliarenko that's two straight fights now where we've seen mccann get submitted obviously the fight before that was against aaron blanchfield a foregone conclusion that she was going to lose that fight but her inability to stop the takedown against Stoliarenko and get out of those submission opportunities for Stoliarenko caused McCann that defeat. Now, McCann, normally at her best, can utilize a grapple-heavy approach if she feels she has an advantage there, but also doesn't mind utilizing some of the power that she has in her hands, just as she showcased against Luana Carolina and Hannah Goldie. She likes to push the pressure, stay in her opponent's face, and be the one on the front foot but she has to be careful in terms of the types of opponents she's facing and what kind of th threats they present to her. Her opponent this weekend, Deanna Balbiza, has been exchanging wins and losses ever since making her UFC debut, and most recently is coming up short against veteran Karolina Kavakovic in a fight where she got completely outstruck. She was unable to get off on her own strike and strikes, and Karolina was able to mix in some takedowns as well, some good uh, combination striking of her own, and Balbiza seemed frustrated from jump in that fight and she ended up finding herself on the back foot and losing that decision i think that balbita she's a decent striker but i think that she'll come up short against fighters that can put it together way better than her and unfortunately for her she's fighting that this weekend against molly mccann molly mccann will likely keep her fight uh keep her forward movement here but it'll ultimately be her takedowns and her ability to grind out balbita on the mat which will allow her to get the win here but even though I didn't bet Molly McCann last time around, I know better than to try to trust her as a minus 300 favorite in any spot, period. She seems to have Belbita beat in pretty much every spot in this fight, but I think the most important thing is for her to go out there and try to secure takedowns and do damage from on top as she has been known to do before. I just don't think that Belbita has the takedown defense to deal with that style from Molly McCann, and I think that's going to be the ultimate deciding factor in this matchup. Give me McCann and McCann by decision. All right, moving over to the welterweights now. We got Gilbert Urbina coming in at minus 200, going up against Charles Radke, who comes in at plus 175. Starting off on the Gilbert Urbina side, who picked up his first UFC win last year against Orion Kosi. He was able to get the TKO in the second round after he put a shit-kicking on him in the first round, apparently broke one of the ribs of Kosi, and then Urbina went back to the well in the second round, and I got a body shot finish of him that night. 
Urbina is a long, lanky welterweight standing at six foot three with a 75-inch reach. He utilizes great kicks down the middle with that push kick, as well as his straight do- shots down the pipe from range. But he does a great job in terms of getting his opponents to the ground and doing big damage from that top position as well. His jiu-jitsu is pretty, you know, very much above average. Uh, and he's a very good fighter, but it's more so him staying active. Obviously, he had that fight against Brian Battle, I believe back in 2020 or 2021, but was put on the shelf due to injuries and his inability to stay healthy has hindered his ability to stay active inside the cage. Now, if he's able to keep that activity level high, that would definitely benefit him in terms of having that cage time under his belt and against the types of opponents he'll be coming up against. His opponent this weekend, Charles Radke, I believe is on a five-fight winning streak now uh, and most recently picked up a win over Blood Diamond or Mike Matheta. That was a fight where he utilized his grapple-heavy approach to control uh, Blood Diamond for upwards of 10 minutes that night, but I was very surprised in the fact that he was unable to get the kickboxer out of there. Radke is, I believe, a BJJ black belt, but a guy that likes to really put the pressure and uh, hurt on his opponents when he's able to get them to the mat. His previous two wins before that fight were finishes. This is a guy that is a finisher, so it was very surprising that he couldn't get uh, a kickboxer out of there the way that he was able to. Um, Radke... uh, solid fighter good wrestler good power in his shots as well uh, i think he's a live underdog in the spot but i think it's going to be the range management and ultimately the top game of urbina that's going to allow urbina to grind this fight out and eventually get a finish later on in this matchup i have questions about radke's gas tank i have questions about radke being a nail which is what i think he's going to end up being in this matchup but he's a live underdog which is why i'm not super confident on the urbina side even with him coming in as a minus 200 favorite so i'm going to go with urbina here fight doesn't go to decision a possibility for this fight as well especially considering how these two styles clash but i'm going to go with urbina to pick up the victory inside the distance all right moving on to the middleweights next up we got Alias Kab Kizriev coming in at minus 180. He's going up against Mahmoud Murdov, who comes in at plus 155. Now, Kizriev is coming off an extended layoff. He's had some injuries and some issues to deal with, but luckily he's healthy enough to come back. And at 33 years old, I still believe he has enough left in the tank that he could still make a run into the rankings. This guy is very talented. 14-0, used to be a welterweight, uh, but his last couple of fights have taken place at middleweight. And even at 5'9", he's still able to go out there and showcase that his strength and power is big enough to hang with these guys. Uh, He has a very solid wrestling game, which is where he looks to take his opponents to the ground and smash them from that top position but he has a good enough striking game as well that he can throw the jab throw a combination or at least get some power punches off to get some respect from his opponent so he can get them backing up and eventually change levels to get the takedown this guy's very talented in my opinion it's just the fact that he's been unable to stay healthy and active enough similar to Gilbert Abina like I talked about earlier and that's kind of what's kept him from making that run into the rankings and eventually title contention hopefully he can stay active enough because I think this guy's capable of making that run but he has a tough test this weekend as uh we have Mahmoud Murdov on the other side of the cage now Muradov stopped a two-fight losing streak last time around as he was able to pick up a win over Brian Barbarena he utilized his striking approach as always but also mixed in some takedowns and utilized the size advantage he had in that fight to outdo and outwork Barbarena but we saw as has been the issue with Muradov in the past his gas tank come to haunt him in that third round against Barbarina as uh, it seemed like he was on the back foot the majority of that Barbarina was the one pushing the pressure there and it looked like Muradov was it looked like he was gassing if I'm being honest right like that's what causes first UFC loss when he lost against Gerald Mearshard that's how Bahayo was able to 
you know, win the third round in a fight that was likely 1-1 going into that last round. And I think that's ultimately going to be his Achilles heel once again against Ali Kab Kizriev. Uh, Muradov might be the bigger, stronger fighter here, but I think that the solid wrestling base of Kizriev will ultimately be the difference maker here. Muradov will technically be the better striker, but I think he's going to have trouble dealing with the pace and pressure that Kizriev is going to put on him here. This will allow Kizriev to start running away with this fight in deep waters, and I think he either gets a late finish or wins this fight by decision. Moving over to the flyweights, we got Viviani Araujo coming in at plus 285. She takes on the streaking Natalia Silva, who comes in at minus 350. Now, we'll start off on the Araujo side, who picked up a decision victory over Jennifer Maya last time, and it was a very close fight. I thought Jennifer Maya actually deserved to win, but Viviani Araujo was able to get some takedowns, secure the back, I believe, in the second round, uh, and she was able to just squeak that victory out. This is another fighter similar to Mahmoud Muradov who has a very solid round, round and a half before their cardio starts to kick in and it looks like they're just in desperation defense mode so that they can go out there and get to the judges' scorecard and still get their hand raised. I really thought Arujo was going to be a high-level prospect when she made her UFC debut, but she was already in her 30s. She's 37 now. She's getting up there in age and that might ultimately be say that it's too late for her to get into title contention. She's a very crisp striker early on in fights. She has some good control time and grappling early in fights but when she's facing too much resistance too much activity she starts to slow down a little bit and really start to give away the fight late and I think that's the issue she's going to run in here against Natalia Silva who has looked unstoppable ever since joining the UFC a couple fights back she has a four fight winning streak in the UFC right now with wins over Jazz Davisius uh, Teresa Bleda Victoria Leonardo and then most recently over Andrea Lee who was unable to get anything off of, on Silva that night Silva uses a lot of lateral movement using her kicks from distance and has some good submissions if she's ever taken to the mat it, it's a great uh, thing for her especially in terms of staying active off her back throwing up submissions looking for reverses or getting back to her feet where she can get off on her striking game which is so hard for a lot of opponents to deal with even though it looks like she's the one moving backward more often than not she plants and throws often enough that she's able to land significant damage on her opponents that the referees and judges still see it in her favor and I think in this matchup against Arujo, I think Arujo is going to struggle to keep Silva still. I think she might be able to land a takedown in the first, but I think the amount of submissions and work we'll see from Silva off of her back will cause Arujo submissions here, which could potentially open up a submission opportunity for Silva, which is absolutely on the table here. But I think it's ultimately going to be the decision fighting style of Silva, her output and volume heavy style, which will allow her to go out there and get the decision victory, in my opinion, pretty easily. If you want to try to play this live as well, there is a big opportunity that Arujo could win round one. You might be able to get Natalia Silva around that minus 200, minus 150 range. Jump in live if you would like as well, but I don't mind her pre-flop as a parlay piece either. All right, moving over to the welterweights. We got Randy Rude Boy Brown coming in at minus 230. He's going up against Muslim Salikov, who comes in at plus 195. Now, this fight was scheduled, I believe, for UFC 286 back in December. Uh, I believe it was Salikov that fell ill, and that fight ended up being canceled, but the UFC decided to put it back together. Now, starting off on the Randy Brown side, he's looking to build off of a victory that he had over Wellington Terman, where he utilized his usual long-distance striking style to pick his opponent apart and win that fight on the scorecards. This is a guy that has matured a lot since joining the UFC from several years ago, and it's really his distance striking style that has made him so effective. He does a great job 
job in terms of utilizing his knees and elbows when he does get in on the inside with his clinch, but he's so long and rangy. 78-inch reach at welterweight is almost unheard of, and he utilizes it very well. He has great shots down the pipe, great kicks up the middle, and that usually frustrates opponents and keeps them at bay. If he's able to continue to keep his chin tucked and be very sound defensively, he's going to be very hard for a lot of opponents to deal with. His opponent this weekend, Muslim Salikov, is 39 years old and coming off of a decision loss to Nicholas Dalby. That was after he was able to knock out Andre Fialio the fight before that, but it's starting to show to me that Salikov is slowly starting to slow down. The King of Kung Fu does a great job in terms of utilizing his spinning techniques to hurt his opponents from range. He has some decent power in his shots, but I think the fact that he's going to be at a significant speed disadvantage in this matchup, especially age disadvantage in this matchup, will force him to just throw something at the wall and hope that it sticks he's going to be crashing the pocket recklessly in my opinion but i think brown would do a good enough job in terms of circling out circling away and staying away from the big power of salikov and even if salikov wants to take this fight to the ground i don't think his wrestling is dominating enough to keep randy brown in a position that will keep brown uh you know still or static i think brown will do a good enough job in terms of stuff and takedowns pivoting off the cage so he stays away from takedown attempts or even if he is taken to the ground i think he has done a great job in terms of being urgent enough off of his back to get back to his feet so that he can get back to his handiwork i think we'll see brown win this fight pretty decisively and i think it comes in the form of him outpointing, outworking and out striking salikov on the feet en route to a decision victory Moving on to the next fight here, we got Hanato Moikano going up against Drew Dober in a lightweight matchup. Moikano coming in off of a long layoff as a minus 145 favorite. As I touched upon at the beginning of the show, uh, he went viral after his victory over Brad Rudell with the uh, unfiltered post-fight interview he had with Joe Rogan. First, he lost his shit that he was talking to Joe Rogan to begin with. And then he went into the fact that he just loves fighting, loves money, and he wants to get paid more. Uh, Filled that in with a bunch of expletives, and that's how we ended up going viral. Unfortunately for him, he was scheduled to fight Armand Surukian at the beginning of 2023 and he suffered a very bad knee injury which forced him to be to forced him to sit on the shelf uh, for that long. Now he's fully healthy, fully fully ready and trying to make one last run into the lightweight title contention at 34 years old. We know he is a tremendous BJJ black belt and he does a great job in terms of slapping on chokes and choking his opponents out. Uh, But he also has a very educated striking game when he's able to get comfortable there, throwing his long shots down the pipe, his kicks up the middle. Uh, He's very long and rangy, 5'11", 72-inch reach, uh, very difficult to deal with. His durability has kind of been an issue in the past, so if he's able to shore that up a little bit more, he'll definitely be more dangerous. But he definitely does his best work when he's able to drag his opponents to the mat, jump on their back, and then from there eventually work to get that rear naked choke his opponent this weekend will definitely be looking to take his head off as drew dober is coming off of a dominant knockout victory over ricky glenn last time previously to that he had his winning streak snapped by matt frivola as a giant favorite as frivola was able to land the big shot on him and knock him out drew dober is another fighter that has been tremendously improving his skill set ever since joining the the ufc essence i believe since 2014 um he's 35 years old now uh, but he's gotten way better at his striking showcasing his power 
and more often not going out there and winning his fights by knockout. He has a very good cardio game, so he can go deep into fights if he needs to, but I think he's going to be at a complete skill disadvantage in this fight against Moicano. Moicano should be able to drag this fight to the ground, and I think he will be able to eventually snatch that back of Dober, and I think he'll be able to sink in a rear naked choke. Dober will be fighting hard for himself in this first round, so don't expect Hanato to get this fight done so easily, which is why even at minus 145, I'm a little bit hesitant, especially after the long layoff and knee surgery that Moicano is returning from. Uh, again, at 34 years old, you have to wonder how much it has uh, impacted him and affected him. Uh, but fight doesn't go to decision, more than likely is going to be the play here. As chalky as it is, that seems to be how this fight will go down. But I think it's going to be Moicano who ends up sinking in the choke and getting that rear naked choke victory. All right, that brings us to our main event, which takes place in the middleweight division, where we got Roman Delize coming in at plus 140, going up against Nasruddin Imavov, who comes in at minus 160. We'll start off on the Delize side, who had his winning streak snapped by Marvin Vittori last time back in September in a close fight, in my opinion. Delizia was pushing the pressure the entire time. Vittori was landing some good shots from his back foot, but to me, it seemed like Delizia seemed to be in control of that fight for the majority of it. This is a guy that was primarily a jiu-jitsu guy, but just loves to fight, loves to throw down, and march his opponents down trying to knock their head into the fifth row. The way that he was able to finish Jack Hermanson, very impressive. He got him to the mat, put him in a very compromising position, and started smashing him until the referee was forced to step into that matchup. Delizia is a wild card, a wild match. Man, albeit he's 35 years old so at a certain point his uh, productivity is going to start to fall off here but his just willingness to move forward and throw big shots will always make him live in most of his fights his opponent Nasruddin Imavov had a very unfortunate 2023 in the form of falling short against uh eventual champion Sean Strickland back in January uh, and then January of 2023 that is and then he had that no contest against Chris Curtis in June in a fight that he was winning in my opinion until that unfortunate headbutt that caused the cut to cause that caused the fight to be a no contest but Imavov long lengthy middleweight does a great job in terms of establishing his range with the strikes great kicks up the middle has a nasty choke game as well if his opponents want to go for desperation takedowns uh but he's very clean and smooth from that distance uh that allows him to be so effective right like his his punches down the pipe his kicks um his elbows whenever opponents try to cross the pocket too recklessly the guy's impressive he's he's very fun to watch and very entertaining my question in regards to this matchup, though, is how he's going to deal with the consistent forward pressure of Delize. As we saw in the Vittori fight, judges will see the fighter landing the more significant and impactful shots, even if the other fighter is the one moving forward. So Imovov could definitely be sniping him, like his nickname states, while Delize is the one crashing the pocket and just trying to you know, take control of the fight in that aspect. But can Imovov keep it up for five rounds? Because to me, it seems like Delize has a pretty good chin, great durability, and his gas tank, not horrible. So it all depends on if Imavov can stay within himself, pick his shots, make it look like he's landing enough shots uh, from distance, maybe even uh, get some cuts on uh, Delize so it looks more uh, uh, convincing to the judges. That's what has me confused here. So I, I always like going with a fighter that has the cleaner technique, more paths to victory, um, cleaner fighter and to me that is Zimavov in this matchup but at minus 160 it's a tough line to 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 go with if it was a three-round fight i'd probably have a spot on this fight with with Zimavov. but at five rounds the leads forward pressure could be the difference maker in this fight 
So I don't mind Elise as a potential dog, but my official prediction is going to actually end up being Imava by decision. Again, close fight. There you guys go. Breakdowns on every single fight for this UFC Vegas 85 card. And if you've made it this far, you're probably wondering, hey, I don't think this guy picked a single underdog to win this fight. And that is unfortunately correct. You know, you guys know me. I love chasing dogs. I love looking for spots where I can be like, okay, this guy is a live dog. Like this past weekend, we had a plus 250 underdog, plus 350 underdog on uh, the regional scene. But there's nothing convincing enough for me to actually go out there and make them a legitimate prediction. If you guys want to know who are my actual live dogs, these are the four that I've, again, if you're putting a gun to my head and saying, which four dogs do you think have the best chances of winning this weekend? Roman Delize, Charles Radke, Drew Dober, and Jamal Pogues. Those were the four dogs that I, again, I really thought hard to myself who could come out on top if I were was forced to pick dogs. And those were the four there. But in terms of actual predictions, I think favorites end up sweeping this card if it goes to what I think it's gonna, what it's going to be like. So there you guys go. Uh, a ton of other great cards, uh, segments, videos dropping this week. Obviously, tomorrow, top three lock of the night candidates. Wednesday, top three dog of the night candidates. Thursday, free parlay plus the quick picks version of the podcast. And then Friday, the three best prop bets. And then Saturday night, post-event recap. As soon as the event wraps up, make sure you guys keep your eyes peeled for that. Appreciate all the love. Appreciate all the support. And I'll see you guys again throughout the week. Peace. Thank you.